You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Teaching Media Literacy with Giancarlo Fiorella. This week, the Director of Research and Training at Bellingcat took to the stage. Giancarlo has been leading Bellingcat education efforts and has recently completed a project teaching media literacy skills in UK schools. In the Discord stage talk, Giancarlo shared the origins of training at Bellingcat, why Bellingcat puts such an emphasis on education, and how listeners can get involved with our public workshops. We also spoke about why media literacy is so important with the growing concern of disinformation and fake news impacting reporting and world events. You can find links to the Student View project in the description of this podcast. The talk was hosted by me, Charlotte Marr, on Thursday the 15th of February in the Bellingcat Discord server. Okay. All right. Okay, I think we should start. So, hello all. Welcome. This week's speaker needs no introduction, but in case you're new to Bellingcat, Giancarlo Fiorella is Director of Research and Training at Bellingcat, a talented researcher in his own right. You may have come across his helpful guide to maintaining mental hygiene as a researcher, protecting your mental health whilst online, or he may have led a workshop or held a lecture you attended. You may even have been graced uh, with Giancarlo's presence on the Discord many a time, as he is a key driver of the community and values community input deeply on here. He also oversees all of our educational efforts and it's this strand that we're gonna be talking about today. We've recently partnered with the Student View, Demos and PHSE E Association in the UK to deliver media literacy training to teachers from UK schools. In the talk today, Giancarlo will speak on that project, why it came about and what Bellingcat strives for in this area in the future. As he talks, please put all your questions in the chat and I'll ask them as we move into the Q&A section. Thanks so much for taking to the stage again, Giancarlo. I will pass the mic over to you now. I have not uh, done a stage talk in a while. I used to uh, do them, uh, all of them, way back. And uh, Charlie has taken over. And so I'm really happy to be here um, on this stage again. As you just heard, I'm the Director of Research and Training here at Bellingcat. I took over for Eric Toller after he went to the New York Times. And since then, um, that was back in September, I've been um, doing a lot of different things, a lot more administrative work, um, and a lot more sort of like high-level planning and strategizing. And uh, among that, um, I I do uh, still quite a lot of education work, including this project. the Media Literacy Champions Project that I'll be talking about in a little bit. Before I get to that, though, I thought maybe it'd be interesting to give you kind of a a rundown, a history of how is it and why is it that Bellingcat is is doing research, is doing training, sorry. Um, One of the things that we've always had fun thinking about uh, internally here at Bellingcat is how to describe us. Like, what is Bellingcat? What do we do? What, What does Bellingcat do? And... Um, it's always a tricky question to answer because we're sort of equal parts research organization, but not, we're not entirely a research organization. We're not really a newsroom in that we're not really in the business of sort of breaking news. You know, this happened and we publish something. We take a long time usually to publish our results. Um, so we're not quite straightforward news organization. Uh, and we also do a lot of training. So um, that's actually a big part of the work that we do. Some of us are doing like 50% of our time is dedicated to training. So you see, we're sort of a interesting combination of, uh, of things. So we're part research organization, part newsroom, part training, um, uh, organization. So I, I wanted to give you a sort of, of a history of that because, uh, not all of you may be aware of all, of, all of the training that we do and all of the different kinds of training that we do. So I'll start with that and then I'll build up to this. Uh, latest initiative that we just finished uh, working on this past year. Actually, last month is when we wrapped up our uh, involvement in this project. Again, the media literacy uh, uh, project. So, uh, Bellingcat's history in education began, and this is this is my flawed recollection. Number one, I wasn't there when this happened, so this is me hearing Eric and Elliot talking about it, and then remembering or half remembering. So, you know, don't quote me on this. Some dates may be wrong. And also details may be wrong, but as I recall, um, as far as I'm aware, uh, as far as my memory goes, 
we started doing training pretty quickly after uh, Sir Bellingcat was uh, founded. So you'll remember that Bellingcat launched in 2014, and um, really quickly after its launch, Bellingcat became an international name almost overnight um, with uh, our investigation into the shootdown of MH17. So uh, really, uh, in the earliest stages, the big the first sort of big project that Belling had ever worked on was the MH17 project. And then suddenly many people all across the world were hearing the name Bellingcat and were very impressed with the work that we were doing. So Bellingcat really burst onto the international scene as an organization that was doing really impactful work in a novel way. So remember again, back in 2014, this open source research thing wasn't uh, what it is today. So back then, you didn't have the New York Times official investigation team. You didn't have the Washington Post official forensics team. Um, you didn't have uh, basically the mainstreaming of, of open source research uh, as we do today, thankfully. So um, as I remember, even starting in 2015, um, Elliot and Eric had the uh, idea to say, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of requests. A lot of people are sort of messaging us, asking us how we're doing this work. Again, it's kind of a new thing. Not a lot of people are familiar with this open source thing. And um, pretty much right off the bat, again, within a year of Bellingcat starting, um, we were doing training. And historically, we've done two kinds of trainings, sort of broadly speaking. Uh, we do what we call the, the uh, public trainings. So some of you in the audience may have come to one of our public training events, um, or you may want to come to one. They sell out really quickly. Uh, so you have to like really be, a, you know, subscribe to our newsletter, um, subscribe to our social media platforms because they sell out super fast. And these used to be exclusively in person, but because of COVID, we started doing them online. And so today we do both. So we have public digital workshops, we call them, and we have in-person digital workshops. So um, just, uh, well, just next week, we have a, a digital workshop in the, in, the, in the America's time. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, um, two of my colleagues, uh, Pooja and Peter, are going to be leading that session. So we have you know, journalists, um, lawyers, human rights activists, et cetera, coming to that. And that's, again, something that you can sign up for. You have to pay to come. And, uh, you know, we have limits on what uh, the kinds of folks that we train. So we don't train police. We don't train military. Obviously, intelligence people, we don't uh, train either. It's all civil society folks who, who are doing good work. Um, and then we also have in-person workshops. So these are, uh, they last a full week. So it's nine to five, Monday through Friday. And the next one that's coming up of those is uh, in London. Um, in, uh, I can't remember the date. It's going to be posted on our website uh, today. So anyways, we've been doing those since about 2015, uh, in-person workshops. So you go, you have two, three Bellingcat trainers, and they teach you everything that Bellingcat knows uh, about flight tracking, geolocation, how to do uh, image verification. Uh, we talk about workflows, archiving. It's a whole, the whole kind of uh, toolkit uh, that we work with. And we've been doing that for a number of years, and it's, it's, a, it's a really important uh, source of income for us. So um, it's always been one of our sort of funding pillars. We are able to sustain ourselves uh, with this income from trainings. We also do what's called private workshops. And so uh, those are when we have an organization reach out to us and they say, hey, we, I'll, I'll give an example, sort of a general example. Somebody will say, hey, we have a newsroom. We're a, we're a major international news organization. Um, we have a newsroom of folks. We are trying to launch our own open source research unit. Can you come and train our newsroom? And so, you know, we'll give you the space. You can come to our office. Um, you know, we have 20 journalists who, who are interested in this. Can you, can you come? We'll pay you and you can do the training. So we've been doing those for a number of years as well with the same very hard uh, limitations that we're, we're not training police, we're not training uh, governments, we're not training military. Um, thankfully, we, we've always been very, we've always had the ability to be very selective. We get way more requests for training that we can handle. Um, and so we, 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 we pick and choose like the ones that are really sort of most important to us uh, and that are most aligned with our message. So those are the two, um, let's say, training, um, um, I don't know, streams that we've been working with since 2015. Um, 
the public workshops, the public trainings, and then the private ones. Um, over time, and this is this became true certainly after I joined. I mean, it was true before, but I personally worked a lot in this area. Uh, when I joined Bellingcat in 2018, I was uh, doing a PhD. I was about halfway through a PhD in criminology uh, and social legal studies at the University of Toronto. And so when I came to Bellingcat um, in 2018 as a volunteer, and then when I was subsequently hired, I had a, a lot of interest in, obviously, in academia, because I was literally, you know, like doing like training to become a professor and, and work in academia the rest of my life, hopefully. Uh, at that time, hopefully. I'm hope. I'm thankful that I was able to move away from that and that I'm doing this job. But at that time, that was my career path. It was academia. And um, so when I joined, I said, hey, this is fantastic. Uh, this, this kind of research is super important. It also has academic scholarly applications. Like people are using it in journalism. People are using it in, in uh, you know, human rights investigations, like, like Amnesty and whatever. But uh, you can also, like, I, I know lots of researchers in, in, in the academy who would love to have these research skills. And so over time, um, we started to engage more and more with uh, universities. And so we would have, we would sort of, again, imagine our inbox and it's full of requests for trainings. We started to kind of pick out the ones that were from universities, right? So we would say, oh, this is from a university. That's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a master's level graduate school, journalism course uh, in Germany. And they're really interested in having us come in for a day so we would prioritize those. And so starting again, in, in a, earnestly, I say starting in 2018, 2019, we started to focus on that. And, and, and very quickly, um, we discovered that there was a growing interest from uh, researchers and universities on these methods. Um, you may be familiar with the Human Rights Center at Berkeley, which is uh, you know, the premier uh, 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 human rights open source research center in the world. And it's really the closest thing, I think, to a, uh, a class that you could take at a university that, that can teach you how to become a Bellingcat researcher. Um, so they, they you know, were spearheading from within the academy this move to say, hey, there's this thing called open source research. Um, you can do it from your living room. You can learn how to do it from your whatever, your office. You can learn how to do these things. Uh, you can have an impact on, on investigations, on all kinds of topics. And so they were kind of leading the charge in the, in, again, in, in the university setting, kind of training people um, to do this kind of work. And, and in fact, several of our colleagues uh, over time here at Bellingcat have come directly from um, the Human Rights Center of Berkeley. I think Haley Willis at uh, the New York Times is, uh, is from that uh, center as well. So, you know, again, we started like doing public workshops for everybody, you know, like not everybody with limitations, like folks who would apply, we would approve them and then they would come. If you worked in a newsroom and you wanted us to come in and train your newsroom, we would do that. Over time, we started to say, hey, universities are interested in this. Younger people, right, are interested in this. People who have not yet entered their fields as careers, they're interested in this kind of work. So let's focus on that. And so over time, we've had uh, lots of it really great collaborations with uh, universities, um, all over the world, um, well, North America, um, Western Europe, Africa, and Latin America, uh, primarily. I don't think we've ever done, uh, we may have, we've given talks at universities in Asia, um, but, uh, but we haven't, I don't think we've been there to give a talk like in person, a workshop. So just to give you an example of the kind of collaboration that we've been able to build up um, over time with universities, um, there is a university, so there's a, an organization in Colombia called Cero Setenta, in, in, in English, the name is 070, so if you Google 070, you'll find their website. And in Spanish, that number is 070, that's how you say it. Anyways, they're based in Bogota. They do fantastic work. They are just the most um, you know, dedicated, like really sharp um, uh, journalists out there. And they are based in the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. So you, Bogota has a university, it's called the Universidad de los Andes. And, and they're hosted there. So they're not officially connected to the university. They just have an office there. By the way, their office, if you've never been to Bogota, Bogota has a, like a giant mountain range. And it's a very kind of sharp, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a sheer mountain cliff that's on the side of, um, of, uh, um, of the city. And the Universidad de los Andes is built like up the mountain. So you can like the entrance to the university is like at sea level, not at sea level, whatever elevation Colombia is. 
but then you can, you have to like almost like climb, like rock climb up and up. So you might have a class that's like, you know, 500 meters above the entrance to the university. So it's all stairs and elevators and stuff. And Cerro 70 has a really beautiful office that's in an old, in an old train car that was put up there for some reason. I can't remember the story, but anyways, you have to like, it's almost like a mystical experience. Like you go up the mountain, like the, um, Altitude sickness is like making you dizzy and you're climbing and you're climbing. And it's, it's, also, it's a very serpentine uh, sort of climb. And then you, you, know, you, you, you turn a corner and there's this beautiful old uh, train car and Cerro Setenta's there. Anyways, uh, getting carried away here. So um, Cerro Setenta is based in the Universidad de los Andes. And over the years, we have been able to do many uh, training events at the Universidad, thanks to Cerro Setenta. So Cerro Setenta will... will find the room for us, they'll talk to the university, they'll get approval, and they'll give us a lecture hall. Um, and then, you know, one of us, it's usually me, will fly down there, and then we'll give a class to journalists um, in Colombia on how to do open source research in Spanish. I'm a native Spanish speaker, I'm from Venezuela. And, and so as we've grown over the years, now we have a couple of other Spanish speakers with us. And so we're, we're uh, continuing to do that, that sort of initiative, uh, both in Colombia, but also with other universities, hopefully, in the region as well. And so, you know, again, we begin with training the public, uh, journalists, human rights activists, etc. Over time, we realize, hey, lots of people in the academy are interested in this kind of stuff. Maybe we should train them. Uh, the most recent development there, I can say, uh, I should say, because I'm personally involved with it, so you got to shout them out. Um, so I completed my PhD, and I was hired as an assistant professor at the University of Utrecht. Um, uh, with something called the Global Justice Investigations Lab. This is uh, modeled after the Human Rights Center at Berkeley. So there's about four faculty at this, at this program, and it's an interdisciplinary graduate and undergraduate program, uh, sorry, class, where um, if you are a law student or if you're a student from criminology, whatever discipline, doesn't matter, you can take this class and you learn open source research methods specifically to do research on um, human rights investigations. And so that's been going on since September. It's going really well. We have a really, really, really engaged cohort of students, uh, super bright people. And so um, that's been going really well. And so starting about, I want to say, two years ago, overlapping with this turn to educating universities and talking to students and so on, uh, we were approached by an organization in the UK and the name of that organization is The Student View. And they are a really cool organization. They, they train, they are essentially uh, teaching media literacy to young people in the UK. And so um, they reached out to us and they emailed us and they said, hey, Bellingcat, how's it going? We are uh, The Student View, we're in the UK and we love to train students on media literacy. And part of media literacy is, is Stuff like detecting, you know, misinformation, and how do you know if a picture really is what what it what the you know the people claim that it is, and how do you know if a video is authentic or if it's not authentic, right? So they said we have an idea for this project, really ambitious, but we have an idea for this project. What we want to do, this, this student view talking, they said what we want to do is we want to bring together a bunch of experts in different areas and have them work together on delivering a media literacy program to uh, teachers in the UK. So they brought together a bunch of partners, including uh, PHSC, which is a UK um, institution that, um, if I'm not misremembering, helps to create school curriculums on health and safety uh, for students, for uh, what, what I would call high school students. In the UK, I always forget the terminology. It's different. Uh, anyways, high school students. So these are like 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. And so they said, you know, uh, we have uh, lots of students who want to learn about media literacy. We have lots of teachers who want to learn about, you know, how to detect this information and, and, and what is this information and how do you know if you're looking at a piece of information or not. Um, and you guys at Bellingcat are like the experts in this. So what they did was they, they brought together all these partners and then they, they got funding to um, have us co-develop a curriculum. Um, to teach teachers how to teach media literacy. 
So that's what's called a train the trainer program. So Bellingcat was training the people who were going to actually conduct the training in schools. And so um, we uh, sat down, um, there was a couple of us doing this, um, and then for, for different reasons, I was the one who kind of put the finishing touches on it. And we developed six lessons on different aspects of media literacy within the parameters that were set by PHSE. So there were, you know, there were topics that were not appropriate for the classroom. So we're not teaching students, you know, we're not like um, what we would do in a normal workshop, which is what, you know, we might refer to like research that we've done on massacres or, or war crimes. Obviously we weren't bringing that into the classroom. Uh, so we had to come up with different examples, et cetera. And so that took about, uh, I want to say maybe six months, that process of developing that curriculum. And essentially what we would do is we would sit down uh, we would brainstorm, okay, so how much time do we have? How many lessons can we realistically do? We ended up with uh, six. And then we said, okay, so what are the topics that we want to hit? So one of the lessons is on, like, what is this information? Another one of the lessons is on AI-generated images. What is that? How do you make them? Where are they coming from? What can you do with them? What should you watch out for? That kind of stuff. So we had a, a, a very involved uh, process. Again, it took about six months, I want to say maybe a little bit longer, and it was a lot of back and forth. So I would come up with the slides, I would come up with the lesson plans, send them to PHSC, and they would say, uh, yeah, you know, this is great. Can you talk a little bit more about this? You can't talk about that because it's too, you know, whatever. It's like out of place in the classroom, uh, et cetera. And so after that process, we had our six lessons, and um, we were... Um, you know, everybody was really happy with them. And uh, as part of this initiative, and this is a really, really, really cool part of this, uh, I also wrote a handbook uh, for what we call the pop-up newsroom initiative. So part of this project with the student view was to create these lesson plans. And also they had an idea. They said, what if we can uh, help teachers set up like a newspaper club at their school? So, you know, you go to school and after school, you have like uh, uh, football, right? Like you're in the football team, you go play football after school. Uh, in my school, we had like the chess club. So after school, you would go, you would play chess. So they said, what if we help teachers set up like the newspaper club where after school, if you're a student and you're interested in, you know, being a journalist or like all the, you know, open source research, you can, you can research stuff, right? So you can talk about things that are happening in your school. Maybe you can research things that are happening in your community. Um, you know, are the, is the garbage kind of piling up on the streets and, you know, maybe the garbage system, like the pickup system's not working too well, you know, stuff that, stu that, that students might notice, uh, in their neighborhood so they can do research on. Right. And so they said, um, you know, it'd be great if we had a handbook of like how to set that up, what are some things, what are some practical skills that students can deploy to research, to do some very basic sort of research online. And the idea is that, um, and, and that's the, the phase that we're in right now, we are recruiting journalists to, to join these pop-up newsrooms. So you may have a pop-up newsroom in a school in the UK, and then what we're hoping to do is match that newsroom with a journalist. And so the journalist might come in and talk to the students about what it's like being a journalist, or they might give them you know, tips for stories, that kind of thing. But the really cool initiative, basically, Trying to get people, uh, young people, excited about uh, uh, the world, and 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 uh, you know, get them to realize that you know you can interact with the world in a way that's uh, wholesome. And I think journalism does that because journalism allows you to go out there and see what's happening and call attention to things that may be happening that are not good, um, and inform people about these things so that hopefully you know more action can be taken. There's more awareness about these issues, et cetera. And so uh, we deployed the classes. I can't remember. We did like 12 sessions. They were all online. Just it became easier to do them online than, than, than in person. Because, of course, as you know, teachers are, I don't know, like nurses, doctors, and teachers are like the busiest people in the world, I feel like. Um, I mean, they just have a bajillion things to do. So rather than saying, hey, can we, you know, get 25 teachers to give up a week of teaching and like come take this class? That wasn't realistic at all. Uh, we did like uh, basically two and a, like two and a half, no, like two hour chunks, an hour and a half chunks in the evenings. So teachers could come in, uh, drop in and, and get this training. And so um, the idea then there was that we trained the teachers, um, you know, they had an opportunity to ask questions. And so 
um, with the lesson plans that we also produced, they now have the knowledge to talk about these issues to their students and they have the resources to talk to the uh, uh, students, their students about these issues as well. And so that was our involvement with this program, which was a really fun and interesting um, program to be a part of. Um, again, the current phase is the journalist recruiting phase. Um, I've looked at some survey da data from the program and a lot of the teachers are hoping to start the pop-up newsrooms in September. So hopefully by then we'll start to see a bunch of these come up and, and students, again, um, getting involved and excited with their uh, communities via this journalism initiative. Um, I'll start to wrap up here maybe in the next five minutes or so. Um, I was going to say something else. Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, again, we started with the history of teaching and education at Bellingcat. It was the public. Then we started looking at universities. Now we're working with uh, this project. Uh, in the UK. So clearly we're kind of looking to train younger and younger, younger people, right? So what are we thinking about doing next? Um, Elliot wrote a, an article in the Financial Times back in December. And uh, this is Elliot Higgins, the founder uh, of Bellicat. And he, uh, it's a really good article if you read it. It, it's, um, it lays out, uh, I think, what's a, a very uh, convincing argument. Um, that, you know, using, without sounding alarmist and without kind of rehashing the same fears that we've always had about disinformation and technology and are people getting accurate information in the news or not, um, you know, Elliot kind of breaks that down using current examples. He talks a lot about like the downfall of Twitter with Elon Musk coming in and just, you know, turning it into a horrific uh, swamp. Um, he talks about the fact that, hey, you know, the, we're in this situation right now where, you know, we're both seemingly kind of more, more and more and more engaged with social media than ever. Platforms that we tended to trust a little bit more are becoming less and less trustworthy. Um, we're, in the new, we're in this new space where like billionaires can pick up social media platforms that are almost equivalent to like a public space in a traditional sense, but now they're turning them into uh, really unhelpful places to have a, a public debate about issues. And so he says, this is um, troubling and it's dangerous for our societies. And so what could we do? And one of the things that he says is we need to really start thinking about uh, educating younger and younger people on media literacy, on how they can navigate the world of information to which they're exposed every second of the day. And this isn't something that we can do like, you know, um, at the school level, this is like a national, maybe even an international level effort, right? So he talks about the need to bring in uh, a wide range of actors together. So, you know, you're gonna have to get tech companies on board. You're gonna have to sit them down in rooms with government institutions that are able to affect change, for example, create curriculums, et cetera. Um, to, to, again, reach younger and younger and younger people. Because I think if, it, if there's anything that I've learned throughout this journey, this journey of, you know, Bellingcat teaching people is that, you know, it's fantastic. It's great to teach a journalist who've been a journalist for, you know, 30 years. That's a great skill to pick up if you can learn open source. That's great. Um, it's really great to teach university students who are about to become journalists because, you know, they're younger maybe they have more facility with the technology or they know more things about the technology that I do. Uh, and, they're, and, they, and they have a chance to like, over the course of their entire careers, affect change and, and do meaningful work using these tools. And logically then you, you start to look at high school students and go, well, you know, if it's better, I'm not saying it's better necessarily, but if it's a good idea to train university students because they're about to enter the workforce, why don't we train high school students as well? Because they're about to enter university and they're about to enter the workforce. And so, um, you know, I can tell you that Elliot's personally really excited about um, this idea of um, training, you know, uh, not students necessarily directly, but teachers, because ultimately teachers are the, uh, the experts in, in, you know, talking to students and training them. But, but this focus on looking at high school level education high school level media literacy initiatives is something that I think Elliot is really um, excited about personally. And so um, this year, I think the student projects are, our involvement in it has become 
um, has come to an end. Essentially, we've delivered. You know, when you when you get into an agreement with somebody, you have to sign a lot of paperwork, um, and it says like, here's what each partner is going to do. We've already delivered all of our commitments. So as far as the work goes, um, we're done. But the program continues, and you know, we signal to the student view that if they want us to help out with anything else, of course, they can approach us, and we'd, we'd be more than happy to um, to help out. Uh, but I think we're probably going to see more engagement on that level uh, in the coming years. I think Ali is going to spend um, more and more time kind of looking at that, um, making sure that younger and younger people are able to benefit from the work that uh, um, the work here, the methodological work that we do uh, here at Alicat. So um, I don't know. Do we want to maybe ask a couple of questions? Um, be happy to, um, you know, keep talking with you guys. Yeah, um, I, if you want to ask any questions, please put them in the chat right now. Uh, I can see one already. Uh, but first and foremost, I wanted to ask John Collier, you started touching on it, but why does Bellingcat feel that teaching media literacy is the solution for dis the influx of disinformation, for the influx yeah. of fake news, rather than what other people say, like regulation, of social media yeah. platforms, for example, why are we pushing so hard for teaching media literacy? Why, why do we think that's sure. the answer to all this? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I would say that I don't think that we think it's the solution. I think it's one of many solutions and you mentioned one of them, right? So, so this is um, um, the, the effect that that poor level, like that poor information is having on our societies is, I mean, people have died, right? Like think about how many people have died because they read on some blog that COVID-19 was fake. And if you got vaccinated, the government was, or Bill Gates was putting a chip, like people lost their lives, right? Um, the thing that always gets me too is like climate change. Like there's so much cl climate change denialism on the internet. Uh, you know, climate change, an existential threat to life on the planet, <laughs> again, uh, is being, um, I think efforts to combat climate change are being undermined uh, by poor information online, you know, some of it is disinformation. So you have actors who are deliberately trying to uh, muddy the water so people are not um, able to, to make, you know, logical, rational um, assessments of, of what's, what's real and what's not. Um, you know, this could include like politicians, uh, companies, et cetera. Um, and, you know, name any subject, right? Um, there's just so much bad information on the internet that it is um, really unfortunate. And so one solution, so not, not, not that solution, but one way to help fix of that is to teach media literacy. In other words, to teach people how to discern between good information that's factual, that's accurate, uh, that is, you know, the result of rigorous research versus some guy's blog um, who, you know, is not a, an authority on vaccines or medicine or anything, you know, you see? So... Um, at the level of, let's say, disinformation, that's really important. So I, I would argue every single person who is on the internet needs to have media literacy skills to be able to say, this is junk and this is good information, right? Now, media literacy is also about, if you kind of take a step back a little bit, media literacy is just about navigating information, period, right? So even, even things like knowing uh, what a you know, knowing what a fake job ad might look like, right? Um, so if you're a student, you're going to be looking for work eventually, and you're going to be applying for work online, like on different websites. So you might Google for like work, you know, websites, right? Like job posting, right? There's a lot of fake like job postings out there where, you know, people are scamming you out of money and, and or, you know, it's a job and they're trying to trick you into doing stuff. And so media literacy is also about like navigating those spaces and saying, hmm, I'm presenting with, with numerous job postings from numerous job websites, what is the good job posting? What is the accurate, you know, truthful, uh, uh, factual job posting versus what are the scam ones? That's also part of media literacy as well. So both specifically on, on this sort of disinformation level, media literacy is important because we all spend a lot of time on the internet. We are all bombarded with information all the time. And so knowing how to discern good information from bad information is really important. Um, and also just, you know, for living your life as somebody who might be looking for a job one day, um, 
it's also really important. So again, not the solution, but one of many solutions that have to be implemented uh, alongside each other in order to kind of help uh, rectify what is otherwise a path to uh, potentially very bleak future, as uh, Elliot calls it in his uh, Financial Times piece. Yeah, it's absolutely a vital skill set for everyone uh, nowadays to have. Um, JD Bollins in the chat said, thanks for noting that media literacy is part of the solution, not the solution. Uh, we've got a few questions coming through now. Uh, Follow Marcus uh, asks about the involvement of Bellingcat in the actual project. So are you going to attend some of the classes where the teachers deliver the curriculum so you can get feedback? Perhaps you can just yeah, explain no. a little bit about how uh, Bellingcat has been involved with the actual teachers sessions and things like that. Um, where, where do yeah. you draw the line in this project? That's good. Yeah. So, you know, if I was invited to one of the classes, I would definitely, you know, I, I'd make time to go. But no, that's not that's not in the plan. Uh, we also one of the other partners, Demos, it's called Demos, D-E-M-O-S. They are the uh, I forget what the technical term is, but they're the kind of the tracking partner. So they are the ones in this initiative who are in charge of making sure that the materials that we delivered were uh, implemented in classrooms and to collect feedback to make sure that the material was effective, right? So uh, they're the ones who are in charge of like doing surveys, following up with teachers, um, and doing all of that sort of um, accountability work um, over time to 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 allow us to go at the end of the you know next year or this year to go, oh yeah, this actually ended up working pretty well, or or some of it worked really well, but these three things have to change based on the feedback from the from the classes. So I won't personally be there, but part of the project does involve a very sort of close following of how this actually plays out in the classrooms. Uh, Petova asks, and this kind of ties into my next question, actually. I like the idea of teaching high school age kids, but there are so many people that are older and have maybe 50 to 70 years ahead of them. What are your thoughts about approaching a wider audience? And I wanted to ask you, what's kind of the age limit in terms of going younger in terms of teaching these skill sets, when can when can people actually absorb these kinds of uh, lessons? Yeah, look, I, I think I think the key. So, so the question, if I understand it correctly, is like how young how young can you be, and still kind of, you, you know, can you teach it at a kindergarten level? Is the is that what I'm hearing? That's what I was asking. Uh, yeah. What what's your thoughts about approaching a wider audience in terms of a wider age range from old to too young. Yeah. So thanks. So okay, I'll, I'll start with uh, you know folks who might be older. So yeah. So our public workshops. You know, uh, I, I'm in charge of uh, approving people to come to our public workshops. You know, you have to apply, and we do like a very, we do a sort of a back, not a background check, like we just vet the people. Um, and we have lots of folks who are retired um, who are, and, and they'll say like, hey, I'm retired. I retired last year. I'm retiring this year, and I'm looking for something to do now that I'm not going to be working. And we love to have those people in our in our workshops because, again, you know, uh, uh, media literacy and open source research skills are it's great if you can work in this field because then you're doing something that hopefully you like to do. But I, I I wish everybody in the world, regardless of what their job is, regardless of whether or not they're retired or not, knew how to navigate Twitter without you know falling into every trap that some guy who created an image with Midjourney sets, right? So. Um, there's no upper age limit. Um, you know, if you're retired and you want to pick up a new skill, fantastic. Like, please come to our workshops. Please come to our, our events. Going the other way, um, I think that the so let me just begin by saying I'm not uh, I've, I'm not a high school teacher. I'm not a teacher, obviously. Um, I have taught at the university level for a number of years. I'm currently teaching, as I said, at Utrecht University. I've taught a class at, at the University of Toronto. I have I, had like lots of um, teaching experience with university students. Um, I think that the key, if you ask me, again, my very um, um, kind of layperson um, take, you can, at the, at the most basic level, um, when I was in elementary school and when I was in high school, I learned a lot about critical thinking skills. I remember my teachers using that phrase all the time, critical thinking, critical thinking, critical thinking. When I was in elementary school and in high school, this was before social media, right? And so I think that if you wanted to say, hey, how do we teach, how do we teach media literacy? How do we teach uh, young people how to be successful on the internet and how to not fall for disinformation, misinformation, et cetera? 
I think what you need to do is kind of abstract all of that and, and go back to teaching critical thinking skills. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what this is all about. It's about thinking critically. And I think you can teach young people how to think critically uh, because again, I received that training when I was in grade five, grade six, right? So I think that's the key. If you, if you want to go younger, if you want to teach younger people how to do this, you don't have to talk about like, you know, hey, when you guys are on Telegram doing research on whatever, watch out for this. Uh, you can just kind of abstract it and say, hey, critical thinking is important. Some, sometimes people say things that are lies. Like, how do you tell the difference? Um, I think that's one way to do it. Again, I'm a lay person when it comes to uh, teaching uh, children. So take that with a grain of salt. Your schooling sounds a lot uh, better than mine. I definitely didn't have critical <laughs> thinking classes. I wish I did, though. It would have been very useful. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but I think, you know, I can't, I'm not going to pretend I remember like exactly what I learned in grade five, but I do remember it was like built into, I just remember that phrase and, and, I, and I think they just built it into everything. So it, it, it was just, I don't know, uh, it, it was, it was like kind of peppered in every kind of lesson that was the critical thinking of it. Glib had a, a kind of a follow-up question to this. Have the teachers ever got back to say that some students may be too far in? I feel it's much harder to teach these media literacy skills to post-university age people due to them already having established frameworks for their reasoning. Is that something that's also seen in younger people? I think this is a really interesting question. Yeah. Hi, Glenn. Uh, thanks for coming. Good to see you. Uh, yeah. So I'll give you an example. I had an interesting interaction with a teacher during one of the lessons who uh, they said, I think we were, I can't remember the details, but we, I think we were talking about we were going through some examples of, I think, like climate change uh, denialism. There was some like Instagram posts where people were saying it wasn't real. <laughs> Pardon me. And we were talking about, um, so we were looking at this example. We were saying, okay, so like when you're talking to your students about this, um, how do you, um, you know, kind of break down the... Uh, how, how do you break down the statements that are made in this article in a way that is in, in a way that is critical, right? So it, it was an Instagram post and it would say something like, I don't know, I'm going to give you a dumb, a dumb example. It was like, you know, if climate change is real, then why did it snow this morning, right? And so we were kind of breaking that down and going, okay, so how could you have a conversation with your students about, about thinking about this critically? Like, what are some critical questions that you can ask about this claim? And one of the teachers said, you know, I have students who are, like contrarians, like to get a rise out of people to, to, I don't know, kind of be funny. They'll just say, they'll, they'll, they'll go, no, 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 teacher, like really climate change is, is not real. Right. And so this teacher asked, how do you, you know, tell the difference between whether or not that student really believes that, or if they're just doing that to get a rise out of people and how do you kind of factor in the fact that a lot of teenagers, I certainly was this way are going to want to be edgy and they're going to think that, you know, the, you know, pushing the envelope is a good, is a good thing. And, and, and so how do you kind of balance all of that? Because some students essentially may, may be too far in as, as Glib is putting it. And I said, I, I don't know. I have, <laughs> I have no idea. Um, you know, I, and I think the answer, you know, my answer now is, is, uh, you know, if you're, if you're too far in the rabbit hole, uh, you know, that's a tough place to be in. It's a tough place to get out of. Um, and the best solution to that might be to, you know, get people early, like teach them critical thinking skills early so that they don't fall into the rabbit holes in the first place. I, I realize that's not a satisfactory answer, but um, I'm sorry. When you uh, were designing the lessons, how did you avoid kind of the lessons becoming old or dated after a while? Because obviously with school yeah. curriculum, uh, you want them to stay fresh and relevant, but yeah. with things like you mentioned that one of the lessons was on AI manipulation, obviously that's, yeah. that's changing every second. Uh, so how yeah. did you kind of uh, future-proof these kinds of lessons uh, for the teachers? Sure. Yeah. So I, I'll say that the, um, let's say that the, the standard operating procedure, we use that term for working with images for like a picture or a video, you know, if you're doing something like a fact check, those rules have already been established and they've, they've been pretty stable for the last many years. So you can Google verification handbook and you could probably read a handbook on how to verify images from like four or five years ago and some details will have changed, but Overall, I think that handbook is probably going to be pretty good. Like you're going to be able to uh, deploy it 
today and say, hey, it worked. It, the, everything still works. With AI, though, as you said, Charlie, um, there is no future proving. And so I be, like the first slide in the section on, on AI images is like a big disclaimer. This, this may be obsolete as, I, as I'm delivering this training to you right now. So I put these slides together, like I reviewed them last night. I cannot guarantee, and in fact, I can bet money that in six months, <laughs> all of this is going to be really old news and you will never, um, you know, you'll say I can't use any of that anymore, right? And that is new. So um, it, the, the, the rapid pace at which AI, and in particular AI generating technology, AI image generating technology has developed over the last while is unlike anything that I've seen in this field before. And that means that workflows are obsolete like pretty much as soon as you write them down. And so they have to constantly be um, rewritten. And so there is no way to future proof that. I certainly did it didn't in the classes. I tried to keep it abstract by kind of talking about the kinds of images that you can make and the, what the capabilities are today and where they may be going in the future. Um, but I didn't focus any time on like, hey, use this website to check if an AI image is, is AI generated or not, because I, that website would stop working already because you know Midjourney Sticks came out and you know it made the website obsolete. So it's really tough with AI in particular. It's it, I would say it's like it's it's been the most challenging to keep um, uh, uh, current. Uh, any any anything that has to do with AI is, is obsolete as, uh, almost as soon as you write it down. Yeah, I think you just have to give those caveats. And as people in the chat have been saying, you know, teaching those vital skills of critical thinking is really the essence of what we're trying to do here. Um, a couple of people have been asking about getting involved with this kind of project. Uh, maybe uh, you can outline whether we'd be looking to do this kind of thing in other countries. Bakey J says, yeah. I might have misunderstood the way we can engage in this learning training. If we wanted to donate our time, should we attend a Bellingcat training workshop first or contact the student view, for example? What's the next steps if you want to get involved with all of this? You have to be a journalist in the UK. So if you're a journalist in the UK, uh, you can check out the student view website and navigate to the section on the pop-up newsrooms, and then you can donate your time. You don't have to have training um, on like a Bellingcat training for it. Um, so that's not a prerequisite. The only prerequisite is you have to be a journalist. You have to be in the UK. That's it. Uh, and so there, there you go, Charlie. Thanks for the link there. You just go over to the student view, check out the pop-up newsroom section, and there's a form that you can fill out. You get vetted, and then you get approved. Um, so that's the that's the uh, the best way to volunteer for this, um, being a journalist. And I'm sorry, Charlie, I, I forgot the first kind of question that you asked. It's okay. I was just asking whether we would be looking to do this kind of project oh, yes. uh, in other countries or duplicate it in any in any way. So uh, I'll tell you that it was it was really challenging to work on this project because of the parameters of the UK curriculum, right? And I'm saying UK curriculum, but every country that has an educational system is going to have rules for for their curriculums, right? Now it was challenging for me because. Up until this project, we didn't have to worry about a curriculum. We made it. So there was no limits on what we could teach and how. So we could use any example. We can talk about any topic. Um, we, could we were literally creating the curriculum ourselves. And that's what you would get at a training by Bellingcat. It's what we want to teach you. So as soon as we came into the project, we were like, great. So we have lots of examples that we can use. And, and so immediately, uh, PHSE, you know, correctly because they're doing their job. They're, they're they have to, you know, uh, you know, they can't just let anybody walk into a classroom and start, you know, teaching whatever. They were saying, hey, you know, there are rules. Like we have to do it a certain way. We can't talk about these sorts of examples. Uh, you know, um, there was a lot of, um, and again, I'm not criticizing this. I'm just saying this is the fact, and I, I think it's a good thing. They were saying, you know, if you're you, uh, you should try to avoid asking the students like direct questions about have they encountered disinformation or have they fallen for disinformation online because there's a concern that students might be embarrassed to kind of share that information. And if they say yes, then maybe they'll be bullied, that kind of thing, right? Again, not a critique of, of the project, but uh, an example of a consideration that I never would have imagined myself because, again, I'm not used to working within these parameters. And so that was challenging. Um, I'm glad that we worked through the issues and, and, and ultimately we, we came up with what I think is a good uh, 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 
program for the teachers, but that was a challenge. And so if I was, if we were approached again by another country and they were saying, Hey, um, can you do this with us? Can you do a student, a student view project in France or in Italy or uh, the U S or whatever? Um, I would, I would having that knowledge, I would just allot a lot more time to the curriculum development. So I would say, sure, let's look into it, but I need like double the time that I told the student view that I needed, because now I know that when you're dealing with curriculums at, at, at you know, um, at, at the national level, for example, the state level in the US, wherever it's done, it gets complicated. So um, I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not opposed to doing it again, but I would, I would just budget way more time to kind of sit down and get the intricacies of the curriculum um, down before I, I committed to, to uh, doing something like this again. Thanks for that insight. Um, just moving quickly away from the Student View project, uh, back onto kind of Bellingcat trainings, because you mentioned kind of the evolution of our teaching. Um, Tata Source in the comments has asked, are there any kinds of terms of agreement for taking the Bellingcat trainings? As in, can we put that certification on our resume? Uh, can we have that yeah. certification revoked? Is there anything uh, that you can explain on the mm -hmm. Bellingcat trainings, particularly as we have some online ones available right now on our yeah. website? Um, yeah, so uh, like the only thing that we ask the participants to do is, uh, you know, we'll, sh we'll be sharing like uh, slide decks and stuff with you, so things that we put together, and we just ask you to not share them outside of the training because, um, you know, it's like our intellectual, our intellectual property. It's a, they're really important for us to earn rev income so that we can operate. And so, you know, if we share with you a slide deck and then you put it on the internet, that is like severely undermining our ability to, to do this. And so we just say, don't do that, please. These are for you. Um, they're for your own use only. Um, that's, I think that's the only requirement that we ask people, you know, we'll tell them, please don't do that. And then, um, in terms of certifications, yeah. So we, we don't we, we don't issue them standard, so we don't like give everyone a certificate. But if you want one, just email us, and then we'll send you one. Um, and then yeah, you can do with that whatever you want. You can put in a CV. You can tell people you did it. Um, you know, people talk about it. Like I'll I'll go on Twitter, and and somebody will say I just got my certificate from Bellingcat, and they'll you know talk about it proudly. I think that's really nice. Uh, in some countries and in some fields, certification is really important. And so whenever I do training in Latin America almost everybody will ask for a certificate because it's in Colombia, at least it's, 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 it's good to have like a paper certificate that you did something. Um, we would, we revoke it. I don't think, I don't think we would. Um, I can't, I'm trying to think of an idea. Like if you took a Bellingcat training and then you set up like an evil Bellingcat organization to like, I don't know, trick people and do evil. Uh, we, I don't know. I, I might email you and ask you, or we might issue a statement like this, disavowing that we trained you or something, <laughs> but that's never happened. Um, yeah, that's the only thing I can imagine that would warrant a, re a revocation. That seems like a very severe <laughs> measure. If we found out that you were doing evil work, <laughs> we'd be angry and disappointed with you. The anti-Bellingcat uh, using- Yes, yes. Fight it, uh, increasing disinformation by fighting the illiteracy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> Just on, uh, and by the way, everyone, we've got a couple of minutes left. So if you want to pop final, final questions in the chat, by all means do. Um, just on Bellingcat's role in, in this whole disinformation space, uh, could you describe Bellingcat as a fact checker? Kind of what's our role in all of this? How do we describe ourselves to other organizations when we're talking about tackling disinformation? Um, yeah. How, how do we fit in to all of this? And, and can you describe us as a fact checker as many organizations I know have? Yeah, so I, w I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't say that we're fact checkers. Again, this is based on my subjective assessment of what I think a, a fact checking organization is. And I'm not critiquing fact checking organizations or saying that not good, but there is such a thing as a fact checking organization. So there are fact, there are people whose job is to be a fact checker. They work at an organization that that has fact check in the name. And if you go to these websites, um, all they're doing is they're checking facts, right? So again, I'm not disparaging that, but um, you know, every, every article is formatted in this way. The president said this thing. We fact checked and it's not true. 
and there's a description. Uh, the Ministry of the Environment sent out a tweet saying this. We check, and that is true. And so every article is formatted in that way. That's a fact-checking organization. Um, you know, they do important work. Um, uh, in some countries, they're really, really, you know, extremely necessary. You know, there's a lot of them in Africa and Latin America. Uh, so I wouldn't say that we're, the, we're that. Um, we do, we, we check, yeah, we do fact-checking, yes. But this maybe gets to what I said in the beginning about, like, what is Bellingcat even, right? Like, is it, you, so you get to a lot of trainings. Or, like, are you a training organization? Well, yes and no, because we do also research. Okay, so are you a research organization? Well, yes or no, because also we do, like, journalism. Okay, so you're a journalism organization? Yeah, maybe. But also we do fact-check sometimes, right? So if you were to tally the amount of articles that uh, on Bellingcat that fit that uh, kind of pattern of, like, the president said this, we fact-checked and it's not true, it would be a relatively small amount. Um, so I would describe us as an open source research organization. So we do research using open sources. Uh, some of those end up being fact checks on our website, uh, but um, it's not the main focus of our work, I would say. Yeah, we fit into our own cute little unique box yeah. amongst mm -hmm. all of this. Um, yeah. As we're talking about disinformation, the importance of media literacy and that, what do you foresee becoming an issue in regards to disinformation this year in 2024? Um, what are, what are yeah. the, the students training for uh, amongst this year in 2024? So, yeah. So I, one thing that I, I'm looking, I'm not looking forward to that I think is going to be an issue. And this is a, this is not my idea. I first heard um, my colleague Nick Waters elaborate on this idea um, many months ago. So I'm Fighting him, boring from him. He said, you know, AI images, you know, there's a, there's a disproportionate amount of, of um, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but, you know, there's like a disproportionate amount of, of attention on AI images because we think, oh my gosh, some guy is going to show up and he's going to make an AI image of like, you know, Biden, uh, I don't know, punching someone in the face and then that's going to trick people and then he's going to lose the election or whatever, right? So there's, there's a lot of attention on images what images, what AI platforms can create to trick people into thinking that an image is real. But what Nick was saying was actually, you know, the, the kind of the inverse of that dynamic may be more troubling and more impactful, which is that now that everyone is aware that we have the ability to create very realistic images using very simple technology, like Midjourney, you just download Discord and you're in the Midjourney uh, server. Um, because everyone's aware of this, there may be an erosion in trust of every image. So what you may have is an effect where people don't believe any image that they see. So you may have an authentic image of a, like a war crime happening, and you'll have people go, uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think it's an AI image. We already saw this, actually, with uh, an image that the Israeli government published of, a, of a, uh, uh, an infant who had been killed during the October 7th uh, attacks. And there was a, a, a lot of kind of pushback against that image being published in the sense that people are saying that's an AI-generated image, that's not a real dead infant, that's fake, right? When in fact, it was, it was a real uh, infant. And so that is, I, I think, a dynamic, again, citing Nick here, that is overlooked, perhaps, and that it's not given enough attention. And I think that's something that I'm going to be looking to kind of spot and say, aha, here's an example of that thing that reversal of that dynamic. It's not that the AI image was so realistic that we can't tell the difference. It's that it was a real actual image and people are saying, I'm not gonna believe what that shows because I think it's AI, but really it's a, it's a real image. So that's uh, another scary dynamic to this um, uh, whole thing that we're all living through together. And we've already seen that a little bit with uh image manipulation, uh, and, and I think Anik did a case study from Colombia where I think the, the president uh, had tweeted that an image of uh, a guerrilla group uh, was manipulated, but actually it wasn't. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And those kinds of claims are already emerging. So definitely, yeah. uh, I think I haven't seen many people talking about the risk of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, fake news went viral for a reason, and it's because of Donald Trump claiming it, and that had yeah. a lot of success in the election period. So. Yes, exactly. That's precisely it. It's uh, AI. It's the image version of fake news. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Right, we should wrap here uh, because it's on the hour. So thank you so much, uh, John Carlo, for joining and for explaining the fantastic project that is uh, the Media Literacy Project with the Student View, Demos and BHSCE Association. And uh, yeah, we wish you best of luck with the rest of the educational materials that we have to design for Bellingcat. And please do uh, get involved with our workshops. You can find them on our website. We'd love to see you as part of this. Thank you again, John Carlo. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live where you can ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg slash bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Dawn by Newer Self and is courtesy of Artlist.